Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The State Department has announced that it will stop publishing military expenditures and arm transfer reports. So the State Department announced this in August that it will no longer publish a report called the World Military Expenditures and Arm Transfers. And these have been released by the U.S. government since the 1960s, and they detail U.S. global military spending, arms arms transfers, data on the U.S. armed forces, and then data for each country of the world, how much they spend on their military and the weapons that they transfer and and things like that. Now, they said that they're going to stop publishing this report because in the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, that's the military spending bill, buried in there somewhere, uh, included an amendment that repealed a 1994 law requiring the State Department to publish these reports each year. So the State Department said in a statement that because of this, uh, can Because of this repeal, the State Department will cease to produce and publish these world military expenditures and arm transfers reports. So the State Department said that the 2021 report that it published was the final edition and that that report, I mean, I just glanced at it. There's there's uh, I linked to the State Department, all the reports that they've issued over the years, and they have archives going back to the ones from the 1960s. It's, you know, there's a lot of information and data in there. And I know a lot of arms control organizations and stuff use this data when they compile their reports on U.S. military spending and, and things like that. Um, just one figure that I pulled from the last uh, one of these reports that covered an 11-year period from 2009 to 2019, it found that the U.S. was by far the world's largest arms dealer. During that period, about 79% of world arms trade was val- by value appears to have been supplied by the United States. So 79% of the arms transferred around the world. That's a pretty good amount that uh, originates from the U.S., so the dis- the discontinuation of this report, which reduces the U.S. government's transparency on this issue pretty significantly, I think, uh, it comes as the U.S. is shipping billions of dollars worth of arms into Ukraine with virtually no oversight. Since Russia invaded on February 24th, the U.S. has pledged $15.1 billion in weapons for Kiev. And again, there's just no oversight. It doesn't seem like there's uh, really anything at all. They've The Pentagon has said that they've been trying to correct it. And their inspector general has been looking into this. But still, I mean, that just the fact that they sent all this these weapons already, having no way to really track them and stuff. Um, is just really incredible. And then this just adds to the layers of of uh, you know the lack of transparency on this on this issue. And this I, I didn't even notice this uh, this slip by me this story. It's actually uh, my boss Eric Garris pointed it out to me and he saw it. I have to give credit to Jimmy Dore because Jimmy Dore did a video covering this. but I mean I did a search and and this was just it looked like it, this wasn't covered at all in in the mainstream media the article that i linked to that was in the jimmy Dore articles from law enforcement today which is kind of a strange 
source. There's like nothing else out there. Uh, it was very, this was done very quietly. Um, the next one here, the Pentagon opens a review of its clandestine psychological operations. So there's kind of a lot to this. Um, this is according to a report from the Washington Post. It said that the Pentagon has ordered a sweeping review of how it conducts clandestine information warfare after social media sites removed fake accounts that were suspected of being linked to the U.S. military. So there was a report published last month in August by research groups Graphica and the Stanford Inter Internet Observatory, and it detailed the activity of fake accounts on Facebook and Twitter that were promoting pro-Western narratives in posts targeting audiences overseas. The social media companies removed around 150 accounts over the past few years, and some of them were removed recently, as this report showed how some of these accounts were promoting anti-Russia narratives about the war in Ukraine. Now, this report did not attribute blame for these accounts, did not say who was behind them, but two unnamed military officials speaking to the Post hinted that U.S. Central Command, known as CENTCOM, was involved. Separately, the Post said that Facebook removed fictitious personas created by CENTCOM to counter a Chinese claim that COVID-19 originated from the U.S. Army Biolab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. So this, um, they removed these accounts in 2020 that were created by CENTCOM to uh, put out a put out a narrative uh, to combat a narrative. In response to the Graphica and Stanford Internet Observatory report, Colin Cal, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, ordered the review, which instructed U.S. military commands involved in psychological operations to fill the White House in on their activities by next month. Cal said that he wanted to know what types of operations were being carried out and if they were effective. So the U.S. military has a long history of psyops, psychological operations, but its activities online are shrouded in secrecy, really. We don't know to what extent really they're involved. And while there are these military units that specialize in, PSYOP, in psyops, and there is a U.S. Army unit called the Fourth Psychological Operations Group, and I actually... I put a video in here that this fourth psychological operations group put up on YouTube. I think they also posted it on Twitter. That's where I originally saw it back earlier this year. And it's just this really spooky, creepy video, you know, just hinting that they're conducting psyops sort of across the world and, and are, you know, everything's a, a battlefield to them. Um, it's just really spooky and uh, people should watch it because, um, you know, it's all the things that they accuse Russia and China of doing when it comes to disinformation and misinformation that it's clear that the U.S. is also um, is doing that stuff themselves. But another thing I mentioned in this article is that last year, Newsweek reported that this was a huge report in Newsweek by William Arkin. And it said that the Pentagon over the past decade the Pentagon had created the world's largest clandestine force, largest undercover army that consists of about 60,000 people, many of whom use fake identities and operate across the world. And a major part of this undercover force are people that operate exclusively online. 
Newsweek described them as cutting-edge cyber fighters and intelligence collectors who assume false personas online. These cyber fighters work to gather data, but some also engage in campaigns to influence and manipulate social media. So I'm sure this, uh, what was revealed in this Newsweek report is related to what Colin Cal ordered to be reviewed. And it's tough, you know, we're probably never really going to know the true extent of these types of psyops and stuff, but it's just really interesting, um, you know, to see this come out and to see them starting to admit that they are involved in these social media influence operations. All right. So the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. And this is uh, an interesting comment that came from the head of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, Kyle writes, according to the head of the U.S. Air Force, U.S. troops report that their top concern is inflation, not Russia or China. The concern from the troops led the Pentagon to reverse a decision to cut special pay incentives for more complex jobs. So the Federal Reserve reported that year-over-year inflation remained above 8% in August, and it's been over 8% for a few months. Um, So Air Force Chief Frank Kendall, uh, he said that he's been speaking with a lot of enlisted Americans and that rising prices is their top concern, not being killed by another army in war. He said, quote, the most common concerns I've heard from airmen and guardians about our inflation housing costs, or conditions in childcare. The past several months of inflation have put unique pressures on the finances in some of our eminent guardians in critical specialties, end quote. So guardians, by the way, are Space Force, people in Space Force, which falls under his uh, duties as the head of the Air Force. Uh, so the Pentagon says that it will help troops by not going through with plans to cut these this special pay and that uh, the White House has attempted to claim that rising costs are due to the Russian war in Ukraine, but inflation was spiking before Putin ordered the war. All right, so the next one here, U.S. is helping Ukrainians maintain weapons remotely. This is according to a report from Defense One. U.S. troops at an airbase in Poland are helping Ukrainians maintain their U.S.-provided weapons remotely via encrypted digital chats. So the U.S. troops are helping Ukrainians fix and and maintain the HIMARS rocket systems, Javelin anti-tank launchers, howitzers, and other equipment that the U.S. has sent to Ukraine. The Americans and the Ukrainians, they have 14 encrypted chats, one for each type of weapon. The Ukrainians are able to send video clips thanks to Starlink satellite terminals, which give them internet access. Starlink uh, is the company owned by Elon Musk. And if you remember in the beginning of the war, he worked to send these Starlink terminals. It gives people internet through satellite. Uh, uh, He worked to send them to Ukraine when the war first started. After diagnosing the issue, the U.S. maintenance specialists can send the Ukrainian troops any parts they may need. One unnamed U.S. lieutenant colonel describes the process in comments to Defense One. This lieutenant colonel said, quote, Ukrainians are going to identify a need. The experts are going to diagnose. 
what's needed and either walk them through it or put parts on order. And then we use the American supply system to get that part here to transfer right down, end quote. So the report from Defense One, it did not disclose the name of the airbase in Poland. It said that it was not allowed to print it. But it described this airbase in Poland as, quote, an airbase that could be among the first targets if Russia expands the war beyond Ukraine, end quote. So I thought that was interesting, kind of just how casually that was slipped in there, that if Russia does respond to the U.S., support for Ukraine that keeps increasing by striking uh, NATO territory or something, this base in Poland could be a target. Because uh, since the start of the war, Poland has become a major hub for U.S. and NATO weapons that have been shipped into Ukraine. Russia has shown so far no sign that it plans to target NATO territory, but increasing U.S. support for the war does risk provoking a response. Russia recently warned that if the U.S. provides Ukraine with longer-range missiles that uh, Ukraine wants, it would make Washington a party to the conflict and Moscow would be forced to respond. But so far, the Biden administration has been hesitant to send Ukraine these weapons, which have a range of about 190 miles. All right. Speaking of Ukraine, I want to take a moment to mention our great sponsor, How the West Brought War to Ukraine by Benjamin Ablo. And this is just a great book, about 60 to 70 pages that summarizes the U.S. and NATO provocations toward Russia since the end of the Cold War until the situation that we've seen today and how much U.S. meddling and um, provocations played a role in sparking the war. And it's full of great analysis. It's not just uh, a laying out of events. It also ties them together very nicely. But don't listen to what I have to say. It's endorsed by a pretty serious lineup of people. Um, and this is what John Mearsheimer has to say about the book. For anyone interested in understanding the true causes of the disaster in Ukraine, how the West brought war to Ukraine is required reading. Ablo makes a clear and compelling case that the United States and its NATO allies, not Vladimir Putin, are the principal culprits. So there you have it from Mearsheimer who is considered to be, they call him the dean of the Realist Foreign Policy School, but he's been a very important voice on this issue. And um, over the years, not just since Russia invaded, but for years and years, he's been warning that something like this would happen if the U.S. kept um, involving itself in Ukraine the way it did. All right, so back to the news here. The next one we got. China complains over Biden's Taiwan comments. So China said Monday that it had lodged stern representations to the U.S. in response to President Biden saying that the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. So Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said, quote, we are willing to do our best to strive for peaceful reunification. At the same time, we will not tolerate any activities aimed at secession. End quote. So Biden made these comments on Taiwan in an interview with 60 Minutes that aired on Sunday, as I went over yesterday. And he sounded pretty explicit. I mean, he was asked if the U.S. would intervene to defend Taiwan. He replied, yes. And then he was asked, he said, yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. And then he was asked if that meant, you know, to clarify, does that mean that U.S. men and women 
would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? And he answered, yes. So the White House insisted that there has not been a change in U.S. policy, but the statement marked the fourth time that Biden has pledged to defend the island. And Sunday's comments on the issue were more explicit than previous ones. Because again, you know, he was asked, "Are you? So you're saying this, <laughs> that American men and women are going to go fight and die for Taiwan? And he said, yes. And Mao, the Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman, Mao, not Mao Zedong, uh, she said that she warned that the U.S. should not send the wrong signals to what they call Taiwan's independence forces. So a big part of this policy of strategic ambiguity, you know, it's not just meant for China's sake to prevent China to not provoke China. It's also meant to not send Taiwan the signal that if they do declare independence or become more uh, hostile towards the mainland in some way, because if they think that the U.S. would have their back, it might make them more likely to do so. And the situation around Taiwan is very confusing, but the current government of President Tsai Wing-in and her Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, they're considered more independence-leaning than other parties, including the main opposition Kuomintang Party, which is uh, not as not it does not favor independence because right now the official policy, the Constitution of the Republic of China, which is Taiwan's government, they say that there's one China, but the Republic of China is the rightful government uh, to the mainland as well as the island of Taiwan. So they also have a one China policy in their own way. So that's why they haven't declared independence. And and uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the president, the independence-minded president, she said that she doesn't need to declare independence because Taiwan is a de facto independent uh, country. It operates independently. Um, but China has also said that any move towards secession declaration of independence would mean war. They've warned that. And they say that U.S. support for these independence forces would could lead to war between the U.S. and China. Um, but in recent years, U.S. support, so they followed this strategic ambiguity over the past few decades. Uh, but in recent years, things have been starting to change. And I link to an article that I wrote Last year, when the U.S., one of the de facto U.S. diplomats at the uh, de facto U.S. embassy in Taiwan, since they don't have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, warned, uh, sorry, did not warn, just said that the U.S.-China relationship over Taiwan is different now. This is Raymond Green. He's the deputy director of the American Institute in Taiwan. He said basically when he first arrived at this institute 19 years ago that everything was about cross-strait relations on how Taiwan fits into the U.S.-China relationship. So they used to view Taiwan as a problem between U.S.-China relations, but now they view Taiwan as an opportunity to counter China, or as he, as he put it, advance a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, but it really just shows how the attitude has shifted. And the U.S., says that that they're the one China policy, they're still following it, and that the policy hasn't changed, but it's clear that things are changing. And the Senate is preparing this bill that could give Taiwan $6.5 in military aid. All right, so the next one here, Iran doesn't rule out holding nuclear deal talks on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. So Iran's foreign ministry said that uh, it has no plans 
their officials, including the president, Ebrahim Raisi, is attending the UN General Assembly in New York and that they don't have plans to hold talks on the nuclear deal while they're there, but they haven't, uh, but it's possible and it's not ruled out because their chief nuclear negotiator, Ali Bagheri Kani, he's going to be attending this uh, assembly. So they're just leaving open the possibility that there will be talks on the deal. But as things stand right now, the negotiations appear to be stalled and a deal seems unlikely. The U.S. has really uh, slammed, criticized Iran's latest response in the negotiations and has said a deal is unlikely. And in an interview with 60 Minutes that aired on Sunday, President Raisi, he said that the U.S. needs to provide some sort of guarantees that it won't withdraw from the JCPOA again when he was discussing the deal. He said, quote, it needs to be lasting. There needs to be guarantees. If there were a guarantee, then the Americans could not withdraw from the deal, end quote. So Biden doesn't have the power to guarantee that a future administration would not withdraw from the JCPOA if he revived it and wouldn't just reimpose sanctions on Iran. He doesn't have that power. So according to media reports that I've read a few different reports, I've seen this. With that in mind, Iran is seeking a series of measures of guarantees that would deter the U.S. from withdrawing from the deal. Um, And also for things like waivers on sanctions relief. One idea that these reports said they had was that, say, the U.S. rejoins the deal, they lift sanctions on Iran, Western businesses start doing business in Iran, they start investing in Iran, and then the U.S. pulls out of the deal again. Well, under this Iranian proposal, they would have a two-year sanctions waiver, so they wouldn't be subject to sanctions immediately, these Western companies. Um, So that might be able to be written in a way that it would have to be enforced. Um, I'm not really sure, though. But still, these are ideas that Iran seem to be floating. And the U.S., I think, has kind of rejected any of of those ideas, just according to Israel, which said that it convinced the U.S. to harden its stance and not give in to any Iranian demands, not make any concessions. And last year, during negotiations with the previous Iranian government of Hassan Rouhani, Biden refused to guarantee that government. They said, "Okay, we know you can't promise the U.S. won't leave the deal. How about you, Joe Biden? You just say, I won't leave the deal during my term in office. That's all they wanted for him to say. And he refused to make that uh, to to do that. And this was revealed by Trita Parsi in a report for Responsible Statecraft. So it just shows kind of the hardline stance that Biden has taken. Um, So Raisi, he's also attending the General Assembly, uh, which I think I mentioned already. And he left for New York on Monday, so he has probably arrived there already. Uh, He said that there's no plans to meet with President Biden or any other American leaders. Um, So that's just where things stand with the Iran talks. Uh, The last one here, this is from Jason Ditz. Russian airstrikes kill 45 Islamists in Syria's Idlib. So Russia reported a series of airstrikes in Syria's Idlib, which is the province in in the northwest Syria that is ruled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is an al-Qaeda affiliate known as HTS. So they now downplay their uh, al-Qaeda past. They were formerly the al-Nusra Front, which was al-Qaeda in Syria. But they are 
Al-Qaeda linked and Al-Qaeda affiliated group um, that has tried to rebrand, but they control most of this Idlib province. And Russia is saying that they launched airstrikes and killed uh, at least 45 of these HTS fighters. So Jason uh, explains that the U.S. has listed HTS as a terrorist group, but tends to issue statements sympathetic to them and critical to both Syria and Russia for fighting against them. And Turkey, it's a weird situation with Turkey because Turkey backs other groups in the region. And there's um, they don't explicitly outright back HTS, but there's a lot of evidence of them cooperating with HTS. And um, they kind of... Uh, essentially do back back that group and kind of give and give them protection uh, against Russia and Syria. So in northwest Syria and and the US kind of endorses what Turkey's doing over there, keeping Idlib helping keep Idlib out of Russia out of Syria's hands, but there the, the US doesn't like what Turkey does in northeast Syria when it attacks the Kurdish groups there. So it just shows what a mess uh the U.S. policy in Syria is. In the U.S., it's always good to mention, they occupy a good portion of eastern Syria and back the Kurdish forces there. And they tacitly back Israel's airstrikes. Israel is constantly bombing Syria. Yesterday, I I mentioned, uh, Jason wrote up that Israel just bombed the Damascus airport again. And when I was talking about it, I, I said that Syria bombed the Damascus airport, but it was Israel. I want to make that very clear. It was pretty clear, I think, if you were listening, that I meant Israel because then I went on to say that Israeli airstrikes did this damage. But just to be clear, Israel is the one that is constantly bombing Syria. Um, and now they've really stepped up their attacks on civilian infrastructure like airports and stuff like that. Um, but that's it for the news for today. Uh, you can contact us at news at antiwar.com. Oh, I got to mention the, the Julian Assange rally, October 8th in Washington, D.C., 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. I'm going to start. There's a good graphic for it. I should I should bring it up and fill you in on some of the speakers that are going to be there. But there's going to be a lot of good ones, and I'll be there speaking. And if you're in the area or if you can travel, it's really important. It's at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Uh, But that's it for the show. I'll catch you guys tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.